Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to another episode of Theology Matters with the Palouse. Thank you so much for joining us on a Tuesday. We normally don't air on Tuesdays, but we have a special um, episode for you all today. So we thank you so much for switching it up and for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon or evening. Um, I am one of the hosts, Melissa Palou, and my husband Devin normally is here with me, um, but he is actually teaching tonight um, at uh, Winthrop University where we are um, launching a Russia Christie chapter. So he's doing some apologetics uh, training tonight with some students. So he uh, wanted me to wish his uh, soon as well wishes to everyone, and he will definitely be back next week. We'll have a wonderful show for you, as always, on next Thursday. But, again, like I said, we have a special debate episode tonight, and this is a topic that, as many of you know, is very near and dear to Devin's and mine on heart, um, the issue of abortion. And we are going to be debating should abortion remain legal. And we have some wonderful guests with us today to um, share their thoughts on this issue and um, helpful dialogue. Um, let me also add that our chat room is open. So um, we encourage people to um, dialogue in the chat room. And I can even pull questions from there later in the show as well as when we enter into our Q&A session. But we'd love for there to be some um, some good dialogue going on in there. Um, I see several people are in there already. So thank you all for, for joining in. The discussion in the chat room. So, um, without further ado, let me go ahead and jump into the topic of our debate, debate tonight, which is should abortion remain legal? And um, our first guest, um, who is arguing in the affirmative position that abortion should remain legal, um, is Matt Dillahoney. And Matt is a former president of the atheist community of Austin. Um, he's a public speaker with the Secular Speakers Bureau. Um, he's spoken to a number of secular organizations, the university groups. Um, he's one of the hosts of the Austin-based uh, webcast and public access television show, The Atheist Experience. Um, Matt also is the founder and contributor of the Counter-Apologetics Encyclopedia Iron Chariot. And he's debated theists and atheists um, on topics, uh, a number of topics, including um, abortion, um, which is what we will be uh, discussing tonight. Matt actually was on our show last year um, debating John Freer on the topic of God's existence. And so we are very, very happy to have Matt back on the line with us. And Matt, are you there with us? I am. Thanks for having me back. Great. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come on and for taking time out of your schedule. I know that you're super busy these days, so we really appreciate it. I wouldn't have missed it. And also, great. Now, arguing in the um, position that abortion should not remain legal is Clinton Wilcox. Clinton is a staff apologist for the Life Training Institute, um, headed by Scott Klusendorf, and he resides in Fresno, California. He is um, a regular contributor to the Secular Pro-Life blog. Um, he has had articles featured on LifeNews.com and uh, the National Right to Life Committee blog. Uh, he's also a speaker and mentor through Justice for All and has spoken to hundreds of pro-life and pro-choice people on several college campuses across four states and through various online mediums, and he has given presentations um, on podcasts and in front of churches and philosophy clubs on this issue. The debate was actually Clinton's idea, so I'm really glad that he um, brought it up, and I'm glad that we were able to host this debate. Clinton, are you there? 
Uh, yes, I am. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you both again for being on with us. Um, let me um, start by saying, as the moderator of the debate um, to our audience, um, I'm not going to be um, included in the discussion at all. I'm just basically here to, to monitor time and make sure that everyone has their fair share of time. Um, when we do our Q&A, everything should be directed to the, um, to the debaters themselves. So um, I'm just here just to make sure everything kind of flows. So, um, but really excited to uh, get going and to just jump on in. So um, the, both of our debaters had no preference of choice as to who went first. So I basically just flipped a coin. <laughs> and so um, Matt um, is who um, uh, won the talk to go first. Um, we are going to start with two 15-minute opening statements. And Matt, we will let you go ahead and start, and then Clinton, I will uh, let you know whenever it's time for you to start. Okay. Okay. Great. So, Matt, why should abortion remain legal? Yeah, so I've debated this topic before, and one of the questions I get, is, especially in this one, is why are people without a womb debating the rights for those who do have a womb? Uh, this is possibly my last time debating the topic. It, my previous debate is available on YouTube. I'm sure this will live on, and I don't know that I'll have that much more to say on the subject. But I would point out that it's a human issue, and that even though I don't have a womb and, and others don't as well, Clinton doesn't as far as I know, uh, we have wives, mothers, sisters, family, community, and so this affects everyone. And But optically, I, I think it would be uh, kind of better if I, if I bow out of this in the future when possible. But talking about abortion, I initially would have suspected that most people are familiar with the bodily rights and bodily autonomy argument, but I turned out to be massively wrong because every time I mention it, I hear from more people who've never even thought about the subject in this way. Uh, the classical version, Thompson's Violinist, has you waking up, finding yourself back-to-back -back with a famous violinist, and your circulatory system has been connected to that violinist in order to filter the blood. You were kidnapped because you were the best possible match. And if you remove yourself, if you disconnect yourself, the violinist will die. But if you stay connected, then in nine months, you'll recover and, and you'll be free. Uh, do you have a right to remove yourself knowing it, that it will kill the violinist? I prefer a slightly different version of the argument that cuts to some of the other objections, which is if your two-year-old needs a kidney transplant, can you be legally obligated to donate a kidney to your two-year-old? Even if you had sex with the intent of reproducing, knowing that there would be a non-zero risk of a kidney problem that would require you to donate a kidney, you cannot be legally obligated, you should not be legally obligated to donate a kidney. As a matter of law, even if I stab someone, I can't be forced to give them a blood transfusion to save their life. There is a difference between a moral obligation and a legal obligation. Um, and there's also a, a difference between moral obligations, moral duties, and moral virtues. But the moral issues are largely irrelevant because we're talking about whether or not abortion should remain legal. And we don't legislate merely on the basis of moral, of, of moral opinions, religious moral opinions, secular moral opinions, or anything like that. We start with the basis of having all rights, and we must have a massive burden proof to overcome before we start taking rights away. Abortion is the termination of a pregnancy before a fetus is viable. It used to be illegal. The pro-choice proponents and the medical experts made the case, satisfied the burden of proof, and changed the law guaranteeing this right to all Americans. If we're going to change the law, there's a very heavy burden of proof that needs to be met in order to do so. One of the things to consider is what happens if we take away this right? 
And the most important thing is that women become slaves to their biology. Fully 50% of all people ever born will live with a virtual sword of Damocles over their head. That by virtue of being born with a womb, they are in constant risk of being forcibly conscripted into carrying a pregnancy to term. We tend to view this as a pretty trivial thing, but pregnancy is not trivial. It's a unique situation that happens to us and not by us. It is an involuntary condition that often conflicts with our desires, our plans, and our health. Carrying a child to term permanently alters a woman's physiology. Despite reducing the risk of maternal, maternal mortality by more than two orders of magnitude over a century, pregnancy is still vastly riskier than abortion, and anyone calling themselves pro-life should take some time to think about that. Consider four pregnant women. Anne is the victim of a horrifying incestuous rape. Betty was taking all reasonable precautions and found herself pregnant anyway. Cindy was careless and didn't take any precautions, and Deborah was actually trying to get pregnant. In any case, they're all four pregnant. If abortion is legal, all four of them, including the one who was intentionally trying to get pregnant, have the opportunity and the right to terminate that pregnancy prior to viability upon request, which, if we're going to talk about personal responsibility, is an exercise of personal responsibility. If abortion is illegal, none of them have the option. They are all slaves to their biology, conscripted into carrying a fetus to term. There are many arguments that Clinton and others may make, but I find that they tend to boil down to naturalistic fallacies. Basically, that's just the way nature is, so you're stuck with it, ignoring the fact that we have many ways of overcoming natural limitations in a variety of areas, or they attempt to saddle someone with parental responsibility by labeling them a parent from the moment of conception, which is like labeling the universe creation in order to fallaciously smuggle in the concept of a creator. Alternately, they try to oversimplify with, it's a life, it's a life, it's a unique genetic material, and so is a teratoma. Or they try to raise the horrific imagery of the, quote, late-term abortions. 88% of all abortions occur before 12 weeks. Abortion, as a rule, occurs prior to fetal viability. After that, it tends to be an induced delivery or C-section. If your arguments attempt to eliminate the termination of all pregnancies involving pre-viable fetuses and you spend your time focused on a tiny fraction of viable terminations, which are virtually non-existent outside of cases where they affect the life of the mother, you're arguing dishonestly. It's like arguing for a ban on oranges because you found a worm in an apple. Denying women the right of bodily autonomy is something we do under no other circumstances. Under normal circumstances, none of us would be willing to ignore the rights, desires, freedoms, health, and humanity of a living, breathing, thinking, feeling person in favor of another person. And the anti-choice crowd wants us to do this on behalf of a handful of cells or a developing fetus that isn't viable or conscious. And even if we were to grant full personhood to a fetus, it still wouldn't have the right to continue using the woman's body without her consent. In the same way that the right to swing your fist ends before it gets to somebody's face, the right to swing your umbilical cord ends at the wall of someone else's uterus. Make no mistake, Clinton and the anti-choice, anti-rights crowd don't want equal rights for fetuses. They want special rights. They want to grant rights to fetuses that trump a woman's right. And the normative point is to say, look, it's, it's more moral for you to suffer for nine months than it is to kill a fetus. What's the harm? Just give it up for adoption. Let the state take care of it. It's only pregnancy. It's not like you're dying. And if you are, well, we'll make an exception. There's an inconsistency in virtually every anti-choice argument I've ever heard. If you make a rape exception, then it's not a moral issue. Life of the mother exception, well, now you're doing math to determine which life is more valuable but you're doing simplistic math that ignores quality of life and equates the value of a productive member of a society with a potentially productive member. But this moral argument about only suffering for nine months is not only false, 
it could be used to argue for, let's say, forced blood donation. Why don't we just conscript people into nine months of forced blood, blood donations? Not everybody, just the people with type O blood. We can guarantee their health for that entire time, make sure they're taken care of. It's less risky than pregnancy. It's less invasive than pregnancy. It is less impactful to the individual than pregnancy and may actually turn out to make the donor more healthy while potentially saving many more lives than a single pregnancy. If by virtue of having a uterus you can be legally obligated to carry a child to term, then by virtue of having type O blood, which is only 37% of the population, you can be legal, legally obligated to donate for nine months at the discretion of somebody else. Where's the harm? Isn't it more moral to force someone to endure nine months of discomfort and deny freedom for the greater good? Maybe, maybe not. But should we be legally allowed to obligate people to do this? Let's just make it a requirement of citizenship. On your 18th birthday, you spend nine months donating blood. It's for the common good. It would produce far more good than harm, according to the same type of math that the anti-choice crowd uses. It may, in fact, be morally virtuous to donate blood. Even may be more morally virtuous to carry a fetus to term. But I'm not convinced that it's a moral obligation. And even if I was convinced, we don't legislate merely on the basis of moral obligations. And the question today is whether we have a right to legally obligate a pregnant woman to be forced to remain pregnant. It's not only outlawing abortion that causes problems. The anti-choice crowd have been legislating increased restrictions on abortions, which are not medically sound and result in abortions being effectively impossible in many situations and areas. That's strange when 48% of the women who had abortions after the 16th week reported that the primary reason was that it was more difficult to arrange an abortion. And while 88% of all abortions occur, occur before the 13th week, that number would be higher and the number of 16 to 25 week abortions would be lower if they'd stopped trying to push trap laws to make it much more difficult to have abortions. The anti-choice crowd doesn't care about that because they want all abortion illegal. They're really sorry that this is the way nature works, but you were unlucky enough to be born with a uterus, and if you find it inhabited, that's just, your, that's just tough. Your concerns are now secondary to the collection of cells until it departs on its own. And that's weird in a world where the overwhelming majority of fertilized eggs never even produce children. But if we make abortion illegal, we're denying the right of bodily autonomy and the justifications offered for doing so could easily be used elsewhere. And I don't offer that as a slippery slope argument, but as a demonstration of the flawed thinking that goes into the anti-choice arguments. They're willing to sacrifice rights and freedoms in a way that shows they care more about the unborn than the born. I've heard people claim that most anti-choicers want to punish women for having sex, often with religiously motivated reasons. I can't speak to their motivations. But I can say that their current and proposed legislation has the effect of punishing women for sex, even non-consensual sex. And they don't seem to care that this is the effect. That this is the effect. Not only should abortion remain legal, we should be opposing the trap laws that attempt to make it effectively impossible. And while my primary position is focused entirely on this issue of bodily rights, that you can't be forced to allow somebody else to use your body without your consent, and that consent to pregnancy or consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy, and consent to pregnancy is not consent to remaining pregnant. There's this issue of personhood that creeps up in all of these discussions. And I've tried to point out repeatedly that personhood is irrelevant to bodily rights, which is why I use the, uh, the example of can you be forced to donate a kidney to, to, to your two-year-old. Obviously, the two-year-old counts as a person, and the purpose of that is to remove that from this. 
And yet some will still point back to science saying, well, you know, science says that a person begins at conception or that a human being begins at conception. And that's simply not true. It's worth pointing out that these personhood claims are wrong as well as irrelevant. You don't have a human being at conception. You have a totipotent cell that is the primordium of a human being. That's straight out of the embryology textbooks that have been around since the 70s that most people cite. Science doesn't proclaim that we have a human being at, per- at conception or a person, and many of pro-choice adv- advocates uh, tend to view the rise of consciousness as a starting point at which we can begin talking about possible personhood. It's, it's absurd to talk about an entity having a personal identity if there's, there's no thought, no memory, no consciousness. It's one of the reasons why the abortion laws are drawn where they are. And my position has always been, um, or used to be, I suppose, that I was pretty much okay with the abortion laws as they are, about drawing the lines where we've drawn the lines, recognizing that this is not an issue that we can oversimplify and characterize as, it's a life, it's a life. Well, there's two lives. Um, And there are, even if you granted personhood to a fetus, Now what you have is two people's rights in conflict, and the woman's bodily autonomy should guarantee that the woman always has the the right of removal, that a fetus has no right to make use of her body without consent. And that is why abortion should remain legal. Okay. Thank you so much, Matt, for uh, your opening statement um, and for presenting your case. Um, we will now go to Clinton, and Clinton will offer his opening as well, and then we will move on to the rebuttals of your opening statement. Okay, sounds good. Okay, so <clears throat> so first I want to thank you, Melissa, for hosting the debate on your podcast, and I want to thank, thank you, Matt, for coming on. I know you're, you're busy, and I, so I want to thank you for fitting this into your schedule. Um, the question of abortion is a very important one because if pro-life people are correct, then literally 1.21 million unborn children in the United States alone every year are being legally and ruthlessly slaughtered. If pro-choice people are correct, then pro-life people are trying to remove a fundamental reproductive right from women, which would be a tragedy. So no matter which side is correct, the implications of this are staggering. Now, um, I agree with Matt when he talked about uh, men debating abortion, that gender doesn't um, negate or support the truth value of an argument. After all, one did not have to be a slave or a plantation owner to argue against slavery. One did not have to be a woman to support women's suffrage. Um, So uh, since this is a human rights question, then it affects every single human being. Now, uh, I, I do believe that Matt is incorrect when he says that embryology textbooks don't speak to human life beginning at fertilization. I think it's actually pretty obvious that they do. The problem is that people like Matt and P.Z. Myers and others uh, conflate science with philosophy. Now, embryology doesn't speak to personhood, but embryology does speak to biological humanity. In fact, embryologists consistently agree that human life begins at fertilization. Uh, for example, Ronan O'Reilly and Fabiola Mueller in their book Human Embryology and Teratology wrote, 
Although life is a continuous process, fertilization is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and female true nuclei blend in the oocyte. Uh, embryologist Keith L. Moore says, human development begins at fertilization, the process during which a male gamete or sperm unites with a female gamete or oocyte to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. And I have several more um, quotes from embryology textbooks that, that I could quote. Um, but the science is clear that and at, a, at the biological level, in the biological genetic sense, the unborn from fertilization are one of us. In fact, uh, um, pro-choice philosophers even agree with this, such as uh, David Boonin, um, Peter Singer, Michael, Michael Tooley, etc. Because where the, where the debate lies is not in whether or not they're biological humans. Where the debate lies is in whether or not these are the type of humans that it is wrong to kill. So the, the argument is with, with uh, personhood, not with biological humanity. In fact, uh, just real quick, we know that the unborn are alive because they grow through cellular reproduction, they metabolize food for energy, um, and... Um, and they respond to stimuli. They exhibit the properties of living things. We know that they are human because they have human DNA separate from the mothers and that they are the product of human parents and living things reproduce after their own kind. Dogs have dogs, cats have cats, and humans have produce human offspring. And we know that they're organisms because they are uh, self-directed entities developing themselves from within into a more mature version of themselves. The only things that are necessary for them to develop is uh, proper nutrition, proper environment, and a lack of fatal threats, which is all that's necessary for any of us to survive. So we know from fertilization that the unborn is one of us. Now, second, we also, uh, I believe that they also fit the criteria for personhood. The unborn only differ from us in a few respects. Uh, they differ in size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. But none of these properties um, determine our value. They're smaller than we are. They're less developed. They're differently located. They're in the womb. We're outside the womb. They're more dependent than we are. But none of these properties determine um, affect our value. They're not less valuable than we are just because they have less of these properties. Now, if you were to look at all the human beings on Earth, uh, we all differ in our properties because our properties come in degrees. Some are taller, some are shorter, uh, some are smarter, some are trying the best they can, uh, some are skinnier, some um, you know, enjoy good, exquisite cuisine. Uh, all of these different things we have to different degrees. And so if we're going to say that all human beings... Uh, have equal value, then that value must be grounded in something that we all have equally. Otherwise, our value would come in degrees, which is absurd. And the only thing that we all have equally is, is our humanness. And this is a property that we share with the unborn. The unborn are just as human as we are. And so uh, there have been great atrocities throughout history when we have tried to to deny personhood to certain groups of humans, for example, uh, the blacks when we were doing slavery, or uh, w or women early in our in our country, or when the Jews um, the Jews and gypsies and homosexuals, etc., were being killed by the Nazis. Human atrocities happen when we deny personhood to certain groups of, of human beings. So when Matt says that personhood is irrelevant to the issue, I disagree wholeheartedly. I think it's I think it's pretty much the central issue, because if the unborn are not human persons, then who cares how many abortions you have? You know, it would be, it would be literally like having a mole removed or a tooth pulled. The only reason we have to argue from bodily rights is if we tacitly assume that the unborn are full human persons, because only then must we come up with a reason that would justify our killing them. Now, uh, pretty much right away, Matt was 
starting uh, by poisoning the well, uh, referring to pro-life people as anti-choice. And I think this is really an unfair label uh, because pro-life people are pro-choice about all sorts of things, you know, where women uh, should go to, you know, where they want to go to school, uh, whether they want to go to church or not go to church, uh, who they want to marry, etc. We just believe that some choices are wrong, such as the choice to kill an innocent human being. I would imagine that Matt also is anti-choice uh, regarding things like rape, murder, theft, etc. So if abortion is tantamount to murder, and the unborn are biologically human, and they are human persons, as I have argued, and if, if Matt wants to argue that they're not, then he's going to have to present an argument for that, um, if they are full human persons, and abortion is tantamount to murder because it kills innocent uh, human persons, then we have grounds for making it illegal. Because while we're not trying to make all immoral acts illegal, like we, you know, we don't want to make adultery illegal, for example, um, murder is the kind of immoral act that we do make illegal. So if it is tantamount to murder, we have grounds for making it illegal. Uh, let's see. So, uh, okay, so let, let's talk about rights for a moment. Um, that is talking about how we are basically uh, pro-fetus and we're anti-choice, anti-rights, etc. I would argue that pro-life people are the ones who have a proper view of what rights are, and pro-choice people have a faulty view of what rights are. There are basically two different kinds of rights. You have your, your uh, basic human rights and you have your legal rights. Legal rights are rights that are established by a government and you usually have to come into after a certain uh, amount of maturity, such as uh, the right to drive or the right to vote or the right to drink, that kind of thing. Um, uh, basic human rights are the rights that all of us have just by virtue of being human. Uh, for example, the right to life is one of these, uh, the right to bodily integrity, the right to, uh, to bear arms, the right to, uh, you know, the right to assemble, the right of free speech, basically most of the rights that we find in our, in our Bill of Rights. These are basic rights. And the thing about basic rights is that we all have them just for being human, which means that basic human rights come into, come into existence when the human does. So if the human comes into existence at fertilization, as I have argued, that means that basic human rights also come into, uh, come into existence at fertilization with the human being, which means that the human being in the womb absolutely does have a right to life. It has a right to bodily integrity. It has a right to its future, etc. It has all of these rights. And so these rights do... Um, do come into conflict. So it's not just as simple as saying that personhood is irrelevant to the conversation, because personhood is central to the conversation. And that's where, uh, where most of the argumentation in the literature on abortion lies, is with personhood. So, uh, so if we talk about um, well, first, let's talk about this idea that uh, pregnancy is something that happens to us, not by us. I'm, I'm really not sure what to make of this claim, because it's not like uh, women just walk around and catch pregnancy like they catch a cold, uh, or it's not like they just wake up one day, you know, all of a sudden they're pregnant. It doesn't happen like that. It happens through sexual intercourse, and this is something that women know. So it, it's not. So it, it absolutely is something that happens by us because it, it happens through a conscious act between a man and a woman. They engage in sex, and then the you know sperm travels uh, towards the egg and fertilizes the egg, and you have a pregnancy. So. So I, I think it's it's kind of wrong to say that pregnancy happens to us, not by us, because it absolutely does happen by us, uh, because it happens through a through a conscious decision of having sex. And uh, and finally, we, when we talk about bodily rights, uh, the bodily rights absolutely fails because of the responsibility objection, and that. Um, 
And that if, if the woman and man engage in a conscious act that is geared towards pregnancy, then she and the man are, are basically responsible for the creation of the child and for placing the child of a, in a place of dependency upon her. So since she is responsible for the child's dependency, she is the one who bears the responsibility to care for that child. Now, uh, Matt did talk about his uh, modified version. Um, and now, whether or not we would force parents to donate a kidney to the two-year-old child, I think it's axiomatic that parents have an obligation not to intentionally kill their child. So whether or not we, we say she, would ha she should be legally obligated to provide a kidney for a child, I think it's a far cry from saying um, that we should not legally, um, legally prevent her from killing her child, which I, which I think is just axiomatic that parents have that responsibility not to kill their child. And so when we talk about rights, um, if, if I refuse to donate my organ to someone who needs it, I am not violating anyone's rights. But if someone tries to, to forcibly take my kidney from me, they are absolutely violating my right to bodily integrity. Conversely, in the, in, uh, in the abortion issue, uh, when, a, when a woman goes in to have an abortion, she is violating the unborn child's right to life. So in this case, rights are being violated. But in the case of a forced organ donation, inaction on my part is not violating anyone's rights. Whereas if they are going to try and take my, my kidney forcibly, that would definitely be a violation of my rights. Um, finally, I, I think this is probably the last point I want to hit up. Um, Matt was saying that we don't, we don't uh, base our laws on even secular moral reasoning. And I might ask him if he could point out even one law that does not legislate someone's morality. I mean, uh, you know, we have laws against murder, against rape, against theft, against all these things, because the morality of our country is that people do have natural rights, and because they have these natural rights, we are obligated not to violate other people's natural rights. And so if abortion, to repeat, if abortion is a case of, of unjustified homicide, if it's tantamount to murder, then we absolutely do have grounds to make it illegal, because murder is the kind of act that we make illegal. So... To reiterate my two arguments from before, the unborn are biological human beings from fertilization, and they are full human persons from fertilization. And that gives us grounds to make abortion illegal. Okay, Corinne, do you finish yeah, with your opening I'm, statement? Okay, yes. great. All right, thank you so much for sharing that. And we will actually now switch to Matt. And Matt, you will okay. have up to 10 minutes to do a rebuttal. Hear me? There you go. Man. I, I take it you can hear me. My call dropped for a moment during the talk. Yeah, I just saw that. I just brought you back in. Sorry about that. Sure, no problem. So I've got I've got ten minutes now. Yep, yep. We've got ten minutes to do a rebuttal. Yes, sir. Okay. So what I heard surprisingly for an opening statement was a whole lot of attempted a uh, rebuttal. Um, interestingly, it, it all centers around personhood. And evidently there's some confusion um, as to why personhood isn't relevant to the bodily rights argument, which just baffles me because I don't have any time this week to actually explain this. It caught me by surprise, actually, um, when he rebutted my embryology uh, note about uh, human beings by actually quoting, uh, in part, the very text that I was drawing it from, Keith Elmore's book, we are Bo uh, Before We're Born, Essentials of Embryology, where it says this highly specialized totipotent cell is the primordium of a new human being. Now, it's possible that a different version uses a different phrasing, but a primordium of a human being isn't a human being. 
Um, but at no point did I disagree that a fetus is alive. It's alive. Hooray. Um, it has the properties of living things, definitely. It has the properties of human, as long as you're talking about genetics. Um, but he says that it's, it only differs in size and level of development. And, and this issue of level development is something that seems to be incredibly dishonest because a collection of cells with no brain activity, um, which is what we're talking about for the majority, is not uh, a trivial difference uh, between uh, living human beings. Uh, but all of this is really neat, but it's irrelevant. Um, the the bodily rights, I mean, going back to the violinist argument where you wake up and find yourself uh, connected to the violinist uh, who's going to die if you disconnect, the question is, do you have a right to disconnect? There's no denying that the violinist is a person with full personhood, including a right to life. And that doesn't in any way obligate you to remain connected to the violinist as, as a legal obligation. It may be morally virtuous. Hooray, you're, you're saving a life. But as far as a legal obligation, it simply doesn't work. He said they started off by poisoning the well uh, by referring to anti-choice. Yeah, I make no apologies at all about doing that. Um, you know, he said that you know, they're pro-choice about many other things, and just not this. Well, I would hope that we could understand that I'm speaking about this in context. I don't think that you're anti-choice in the sense that you don't get to choose what bagel you have for breakfast. But the fact that a racist may not be a bigot about some race doesn't mean that they're not still a racist. Now, this distinction between legal rights and basic human rights um, is kind of the distinction between uh, legal and moral views on this subject. Uh, although not quite. You do have a right to life. You don't have a right to live at someone else's expense, and you don't have a right to live using someone else's body without consent. This is why I repeatedly point out that these arguments that try to do away with the bodily rights argument and focus on personhood are actually not about equality. If we were to give a fetus equal rights and say that it has a right to life, that still doesn't give it a right to live at someone else's expense. It doesn't give it a right to use someone else's body at their expense. And so his response to my kidney donation was that we shouldn't legally prevent her, or that we should legally prevent her from killing her child, uh, which is a different act than legally forcing her to donate an organ. And I agree that there's a distinction between those two acts, the act and withholding an act. But in the case of pregnancy, one act has already taken place, and that is a human, quote, life is using her body without her consent. Abortion is not merely, oh, hey, I'm going to kill the fetus inside of me. I mean, that's, this is uh, the unfortunate, perhaps, uh, side effect of the right of removal, the right of bodily autonomy. Um, maybe in the future we'll get some science fiction solution that allows an eight-week pregnant woman to, instead of um, avoiding through uh, medical or surgical means, to teleport the fetus to some other container. But as long as we don't live in that world, we have to take steps to protect our bodily autonomy as best we can. Now, he wanted an example of a law that doesn't legislate someone's morality, but I was kind of confused as to whether he was asking for an example of a law that is not based simply on morality, which was my point, or a law that 
um, where something is immoral but we don't legislate it. So I'll just give both. Uh, we have laws about speed limits, which aren't moral issues at all, um, although you may make some extended moral argument about risks. Uh, and there are things that are immoral, recognized as immoral, like lying, that aren't illegal. Yes, there's perjury, but lying in general is not illegal. The bodily rights argument that I've offered in both forms um, addresses every single issue that Clinton or anyone else has ever raised. In the case of the violinist, it's a person, and they have a right to life. And the question is, since we have two people who are in this position, does that force someone to be conscripted to serve as a life support system for that other person with a right to life? In the case of the kidney donation, I specifically put it into a case where they had sex knowing that this was going to be a non-zero risk and everything else, and yet, while it might be morally virtuous and, and laudable for them to take the steps to save their child's life, they are not legally obligated to do so. It is a violation of individuals' bodily autonomy. The fact that there's risk to something um, demonstrates that you are taking some responsibility with respect to the risk. And Clinton talked about sex not happening to us, uh, or, or when I had mentioned that it ha it's something that happens to us and not by us, and that's an involuntary condition. And of course, I'm not suggesting um, that they run around catching pregnancy like they catch a cold, but anybody who actually understands sex understands that sex doesn't always lead to pregnancy, no matter how much you might want it to, and that it is, in fact, a chance. Like, if you go out for a drive, you are taking the risk that you could be involved in an accident. But your consent to driving a car is not consent to be in an accident. And if you find that you have, despite taking precautions, found yourself in the situation where you're pregnant, then there's a, there's a possibility to take responsibility for that. And one of the ways to accept responsibility for that is to terminate the pregnancy. Now, as far as I'm aware, Clinton is one of the many people um, who have no exception in the case of rape. So if that's not the case, then I apologize and I'll let him clarify. But if it is the case, then why on earth would you ever argue on behalf of this idea of adults having sex, they're agreeing to take some risk, and that's why now, they're, now all of a sudden they've got parental responsibility, so we should not let them do anything to perhaps kill this fetus. If your thing is that abortion in all situations should be illegal, then why would you raise the subject of responsibility? Because if you do not make an exception for conceptions that are the result of rape, where, where, they bear no, where the woman bears no responsibility for that pregnancy other than they had a womb and produced an egg, then your responsibility argument goes up like so much kindling. It is a pointless exercise. It is one of the things that I warned about when, we, when I started talking about this in the opening, that uh, where, where many of them would talk about the supposed late-term abortions when... You know, they're not talking about the overwhelming uh, majority of situations. And so instead, the abortion activists who don't want to let uh, rape victims have a way out um, have no business arguing responsibility. It completely undermines their entire position. And it shows to me 
the dishonesty of their position. I don't mean that in the sense that they're lying or attempting to deceive. I mean that they have become confused in much the way that they don't understand, even after multiple examples, why personhood is irrelevant. The violinist is a person. The living kid is a person. Personhood is irrelevant to the bodily rights argument. Similarly, if you're not going to have an exception for rape, etc., then responsibility is an, is an irrelevant point to make with regard to your argument. So if the whole of his argument is that a fetus is a, human, a living human person and we should legislate to not kill it, then he is oversimplifying and ignoring the wealth of information that actually led us to change the law in the first place, which is that, yes, you can have a right to life, but you don't have a right to life at somebody else's expense. And while you may view it as an unfortunate natural occurrence that, a, that an abortion results in the termination of the life of a human fetus, that is secondary to whether or not an individual should be legally conscripted to carry a child to term if they do not choose to or if it is against their health or best interest. Okay, Matt. Thank you so much. That was um, 10 minutes there of uh, rebuttal. Um, so, Clinton, I will give you the floor to do a rebuttal as well, and then we'll move into a crossfire session where you guys will be able to, to talk to one another. Okay. Um yeah, well, I'll begin by saying that Matt made no apologies for poisoning the well, but we should recognize that this is a logically fallacious step. So, um, yeah, take take from that what you will. Um, I, I didn't hear an argument in there from Matt arguing that it was not uh, a human being or a person from fertilization, except to uh, talk about the Keith Elmore quote, and it's possible we are using uh, different um, different versions of that of that text but again I did make an argument as well as well as just referring to the embryologist as well so we're going to so as far as I'm concerned he's uh, he, he may not believe it but he has tacitly kind of assumed the humanity and personhood which I still contend is fundamental otherwise there's no um, no reason to talk about bodily rights if, if the unborn are not human persons um, now uh, I, I, yeah uh, pro-life people do understand how sex work. Uh, sex works. Um, it's true that that sex does not always lead to pregnancy, but then again, there are some people who can eat junk food without getting fat, and yet eating junk food still leads to weight gain in in a lot of us, myself included. So, uh, just saying that sex doesn't always happen, or uh, pregnancy doesn't always happen when two people have sex, does not refute the claim that that sex leads to pregnancy, because I think it's pretty obvious that it does. We all learned that in our elementary school sex ed class. Now, when he says consent to drive is not uh, consent to an accident, consent to sex is not consent to a pregnancy, uh, the problem with this is that you can consent to an act, but you can't consent to an outcome. So um, Scott Klusenorf uses this example, that, um, that you can consent to an operation, but you can't consent to a, to a successful operation. You can consent to play the lottery, but you can't consent to, um, to win the lottery. Uh, that's because you can't consent to these acts, because, to these um, to, to what these lead to because they're out of your control, just like pregnancy is. Now, this is, of course, leaving off the table in vitro fertilization, but when you're talking about sex, pregnancy is outside your control to a large extent, unless you try with contraception. But anyway, um, it, it seems like using the consent 
the not consent to pregnancy argument would be tantamount to, uh, for example, if I was, um, this, this is, I believe, a Frank Beckwith uh, analogy. If I was playing baseball with some kids and I, I pitch the ball and he hits the ball and it sails into my neighbor's yard and breaks his window, if I were to go up to my neighbor, knock on his door and say, uh, excuse me, Mr. Uh, Mr. Shatner, uh, I'm just imagining I live next door to William Shatner here. Uh, Mr. Shatner, you know, I'm really sorry about your window. Now, I consented to play baseball, but I did not consent to break your window, so I'm not responsible for it. Well, obviously, that's not going to fly, and it's not going to fly in court. And, and um, Matt did talk about that he believes having an abortion is taking responsibility, but it seems to me that having an abortion would be more like knocking down your neighbor's wall to fix his window problem. You're, you're not taking responsibility. In fact, you're trying to erase responsibility because you're killing a human person rather than taking responsibility for your act, which would be to uh, carry the pregnancy to term because you are responsible for placing that child in the, in the uh, act of dependency upon you. In fact, uh, Scott Klusenorf uses another example um, where, say, you come up to a wall with a, a button on it that says baby making machine it promises a uh, pleasurable experience but uh, there's a say a one in 100 chance that a baby would come out well you, you decide to play the odds you push that button receive your pleasurable experience but lo and behold a baby comes out the chute in the bottom well you can't just leave the baby there to die it seems that you're now responsible for taking care of that child either taking him home and raising him or waiting until you can get him someplace to adopt him out but you're, you're not justified in just killing him to uh, remove yourself from the problem or leaving him there to die by the elements or wild animals or something. So, it, so I don't think the consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy argument really works to, uh, to justify abortion because it seems that you have to be responsible for the act of sex since that is the act that you're responsible for and that is the act that leads to pregnancy. So, again, personhood is essential because, as I mentioned last round, um, the fact that we are human persons is what grounds our basic rights. And so if the unborn are human persons, that means that they do have the right to life and all the rights that, that uh, are granted to everyone, um, the right to you know, bodily integrity, the right to their future, the right to all of these other basic rights that we have by virtue of being human, which means that... Um, that we also have an obligation not to kill them, especially if we're responsible for placing them in that situation. Now, um, uh, Matt did ask about exceptions, and um, one, the, the exception that I hold to is if the mother's life is in danger and the child is not viable so that he can't survive outside the womb, I believe that an abortion would be justified. And now, my arguing from responsibility doesn't pull the rug out from under me on this. That just shows a, a lack of nuanced thinking. The reason for this is because just because the parents are responsible for the children's life does not mean um, does, does not mean that they don't have any rights themselves. For example, uh, if if they give birth to a child and the child grows up to to uh, threaten their parents' lives, which has been known to happen, well, they don't have to let it happen just because they gave that child life. So if the child is directly threatening the mother's life, um, she then. Um, then we would be justified in removing the child. And, um, or I'll, I'll say embryo because I don't want to add any uh, undue emotion to this, but uh, we have, a, we have the, the permissibility to remove the, the uh, human embryo. Um, the reason being is that even if abortion is made illegal, a uh, life-saving medical procedure would still be permitted. After all, we, uh, we still have... Um, we still have laws against speeding, even though sometimes people have to break these laws in order to get a loved one to the hospital. 
So even if a life-saving medical procedure would be needed in these cases, it would still be permitted, even if abortion were made illegal. So that's um, so that is the the exception that I hold to. Uh, Okay, so yeah, so um, Matt mentioned speed limits. And now that, that was the kind of law that I was talking about. I, like I mentioned last round, we don't have certain immoral acts like adultery or like he mentioned lying. We don't make all immoral acts illegal. My argument is just that abortion is the kind of act that we do make illegal because it's killing an innocent human person. Um, so, yeah, so he talked about speed limits. And again, speed limits are laws that we institute that are based on morality because they're based on someone's morality that, uh, like he was talking, uh, safety. And he mentioned that it was kind of an extended argument, but I, I don't think that's the case because the reason that we have traffic laws is for the safety of other people. So that, that is a law that we, we legislate based on morality. And so I, I really don't see where the problem would be legislating abortion if we're um, – if we're going to legislate based on morality, because really morality is the only thing that you can legislate. The only reason we have laws is because someone's morality told them that there is good reason to make that law. In the case of traffic laws, it's safety. Or in the case of things like laws against murder, rape, theft, etc., it's protection of, of your rights, protection of your right to property, protection of your right to life, uh, protection of your, your right to bodily autonomy, and that, and that kind of thing. So I, I believe that's all that I was going to say on that. Okay, okay Clinton, that's, that's perfectly fine. Well, we will okay. um, move into our cross-examination round, and what we'll do is we'll start with Matt, and I'll just let you lead Matt, and you can ask Clinton questions or bring up whatever you'd like, and you will have 20 minutes. Well, there will be 20 minutes in this round, and then um, the next 20 minutes we'll let Clinton start. So fire away. Okay. Um, it'd almost be good if there was just one more round of rebuttal, but I, I've got questions. Um, so, what if I broke my own window while I was playing baseball? Yeah, I'm just not sure um, what that has. I mean, if you break your own window, you're free to repair it or not repair it as you as you wish. Sure. I mean, I think that's a it's a it's a problem with the baseball analogy is that you've broken somebody else's window, um, whereas you know with the pregnancy, this is something that has happened to you. Um, yeah, but the problem with this though is that there's someone else in play. There, there's the other human person that we're talking about, the the human being in the womb. Whereas in this case, there's the human being whose window you just broke, and so that's where the right. relevance of so, the comparison comes in. So if we were if we were to agree that there's a human being in the room in the womb and they have rights, why is it that their rights trump the woman's right to bodily autonomy? Why do they get to use her body without her consent? Because I believe that um, that allowing her to to um, abort the pregnancy would be a greater harm to the unborn child than it would be to the woman. Uh, he has a right to life, which is being violated, and she has a right to bodily in integrity, which in 99% of cases, uh, she was responsible for placing the child there. So, well, I mean, we're going we're to short off responsibility for a second. Um, okay. So in the violinist example, is it your position that the person has no right to disconnect? 
I, you I, wake up and your you wake up and your circulatory system is connected to another human being. Right. And if you stay there for nine months, that human will live. And if you disconnect, that human will die. Is it your position that you have no right to disconnect yourself? I believe that you are probably morally obligated to stay plugged into the violinist. Now, of course, as you mentioned, moral obligation does not equal a legal obligation. But the problem here, and I'm not dismissing the violinist just because it's a weird analogy, but the problem here is that pregnancy is a very uh, natural case. It happens all the time. This is how every single human being begins their life, whereas the violinist case is a very, is very out, kind of outlandish scenario. It could never actually happen. So our obligations may actually be different in the case of of the violinist as they, uh, than they are in the case of pregnancy. Well, I'm fully aware that we're never going to find a, a situation that is directly analogous to pregnancy because it's a unique situation. Um, right. But you basically, you just said that there's a moral obligation to stay connected to the violinist. Yeah. I'm saying there probably um, is. I, I don't know if I would necessarily make that case. I, I know that I would stay plugged in. Um, yeah, but that, that's, I, I think that's probably your choice, right? Would you, le- would you legally force someone else to stay connected to the violence? <sighs> probably not. And I have a few reasons why I wouldn't. Because number one, um, in the violinist case, you're basically connected to the violinist staying in a hospital room for nine months, whereas in the vast majority of pregnancies, a woman is not confined to the room. Uh, She's able to continue going to work, continue going to church, continue going to the store, all these kinds of things. So there is freedom in that. Um, And, of course, there's also, number two, that she's not uh, responsible for the condition there that she was basically kidnapped and placed in that situation. Um, and then there's another case that uh, the, the kidney, your kidney is only meant to filter your own blood, whereas uh, the uterus is actually designed or adapted, however you want to think of it, to facilitate pregnancy. And so in that case, the woman's body, there, there are some changes that go on during pregnancy, of course, but her body has been designed slash adapted to facilitate the pregnancy. And so the vast majority of them um, are perfectly safe. For, for the world. So, so it sounds to me that your primary objections here are, number one, this example is more extreme than a pregnancy because they can get up and move around. And number two, it's not exactly the same because pregnancy is a naturally occurring condition. Uh, yeah, that's, that's part of my response. You do realize that carrying a child to term permanently alters a woman's physiology, right? That this is, you know, while we have this kind of view of it being trivial, it's actually not trivial. And that pregnancy is more likely to result in death than an abortion, right? Uh, I agree. I mean, I, yeah, I, I know. Obviously, pregnancy is not just like a, a walk in the park. There are certain changes that go on in her body. But again, um, th- these are changes that her body has been adapted to handle. Um, and while and I, I've seen the same report that, that you, I've seen you quote before in a, in a previous debate that uh, First-term abortion, only about 0.8 or so out of 100,000 women die from, from early-term abortions, and about 8 uh, in 100,000 women die from pregnancy-related uh, occurrences. Uh, this is actually misleading for a few different cases. That Number one, um, there are complications that arise in abortions in which a woman dies from in a later pregnancy that are not accounted for. And number two, if we're only looking at the numbers, well then 0.8 out of 100,000 uh, comes out to less than 1% of women, and the 8 out of 100,000 that die in childbirth comes out to less than 1%. So less than 1% of all pregnant women have, uh, have complications in pregnancy that threaten her life, which is a uh, statistically negligent number. Great. 
I, I just love the way you guys do math because um, you, you look at this as uh, the violinist. Uh, well, that's not as much, but that's more of an imposition than pregnancy. Pregnancy is not really that much of an imposition. Who are you to decide how much of an imposition is enough to force someone else to remain pregnant against their will? Well, it seems that um, in, in the moral equation, I think we can make a pretty pretty safe bet. I mean, I'm I'm not a doctor, obviously, but there are doctors who I'm, are I'm only concerned with well the law. We're going we're to disagree on the morality. I'm only concerned with the legal forcing of people to stay pregnant. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm not the only one who says so. Um, I, I remember uh, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who was the founder, what was the co-founder of Morale, um, who later became pro-life after witnessing an abortion. Uh, in an ultrasound, who talked about the only things that weigh in the equation is life for life, and any uh, if, if the woman's pregnancy is not threatened, is not life-threatening, then we don't have, uh, you know, we're not permitted in having an abortion. And Dr. Nathanson was a medical physician who performed many abortions, so it's yeah, not just me so saying you, that, but I think that we have precedent for saying that as well. You kind of touched on that before that your only exception is if the mother's life at risk, and this math that you're doing about life versus life. Um, what if it's not actually her life that's at risk? What if carrying it to term would, for example, cripple her for the rest of her life? Um, can, you I, I guess can, you legal, can you legally force her to wind up crippled for the rest of her life in order to save the fetus? Well, what, what kind of crippling are we talking about? Are we talking about like a debilitating crippling or...? Yeah, stuck in a wheelchair. Well, again, um, I'm not a I'm not a doctor, so I don't know if I um, can give a, a medical. It hasn't on this, stopped you from giving other evaluations. No, I'm, just, I'm asking about your evaluation here. Is it just life for life, or if, for example, carrying it? Because you said it was just life for life, mother's life at risk, and so I'm wondering, right. is that actually the line, or if this was going to cripple her for life, would that be enough to no longer force her to stay pregnant? Um, I would say. I would say probably not, unless it's unless it's something that she's going to be in like a hospital bed for the rest of her life on the on the cusp of death. Um, I don't I don't think that it's necessarily justifiable to end someone's life to prevent that. So so you'd be okay with legally forcing someone to remain pregnant, even if we it was going to result in them being in a wheelchair for the rest of their life, but not if it left them in a hospital bed on the cusp of death or actually dead. Right. Now that's not that's not to say that that we don't because I, I I know you're you're kind of framing this in um, in an us versus the pregnant woman kind of way and I want to emphasize that it's not because we don't care about the pregnant woman it's because there's a second life and I know you've asserted that this is irrelevant but again I've argued constantly throughout this entire debate that it is important because there is a second life that's at issue here which is the life of the child and so we have to understand that there are two uh, lives here that are at stake and not just one. Yeah, I, I, I understand that that's what your view is. I'm just trying to figure out exactly where you draw the lines and why. Um, so uh, I, I'll get to one of the other ones in a minute, but just out of curiosity, so what should the penalty be for having an abortion? Well, as I view abortion as the same thing as, as murder, 
I would say that the penalty for abortion should be the same that we would give for anyone who, who takes a life in cold blood. Now, I don't believe that most women are culpable of murder. I believe that the abortionist always is. But I believe that in the most extreme cases, uh, the woman would be an accomplice, not the actual murderer. But I think in many cases, she would not even be culpable for it herself because many women are coerced into it by abusive boyfriends or, or parents who will disown them or something. So I don't think every woman is necessarily culpable for it. But I think that if we're going to be consistent, then we would have to say that the penalty for abortion would be the same as the penalty for any other taking of an innocent human life. It's, well, I guess this isn't the, point for, the time for commentary, but it's kind of appalling that you would not only give them uh, basically their alibi, but that their alibi should be that they were just too weak-willed um, to not do it. Uh, you had said that you don't have a rape exception, and I believe that I've heard you say that your argument is basically why should the child pay for the sins of the father? Is that accurate? Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, obviously... Okay. Uh, so, uh, uh, no, go ahead. No, why should the rape victim, a conscious entity, pay for the crimes of the rapist? Because, again, we have a second victim that, that we have in play here. Obviously, rape is a horrible crime and one that should never uh, happen to anyone. And I, I believe that rapists are not punished severely enough. I think that every rapist needs to be punished, and every rapist needs to be punished to the fullest extent of the law. Now, I don't believe that that having an abortion is necessarily the best thing. Uh, in fact, there's an abortionist named Warren Hearn who, who wrote in his textbook Abortion Practice that women who are victims of rape um, – should be should be uh, taken to counseling for proper treatment. They will not find proper treatment in the abortion clinic. So, so the fact that are you there? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I heard some weird static. Sorry. So the fact that some people may get over this or get treatment or find a better way uh, is enough to justify forcing it on everyone. No, um, I, I I don't think every rape victim would get over this. But what I do think is that if you allow her to have an abortion, you're basically compounding one act of violence onto another. And, um, and so in, in a civilized society, And you don't think, you don't think forcing like, somebody to remain pregnant for nine months is forcing an act of violence, compounding one violence with another? No, because you're, you're, you're not adding a second act of violence. The problem here is that in a the civilized pregnancy. society, we don't punish uh, a member of a criminal's family. We punish the criminal themselves. Uh, for the crime. So the potential life that's not conscious, feels nothing, and has no memory is more valuable than the actual life and its desires and wishes. Your model seems to be that the most moral position is to legally force a rape victim to remain pregnant rather than terminating a pre-viable non-conscious collection of cells. Um, well, again, it's not just a non-conscious pre-viable collection of cells. It's an actual that's developing human being. So there's a second victim that we have here. There's, how can there be a victim if there's no conscious awareness or anything else? You're, you're talking you don't about have a potential be, victim. Well, no, it's not a potential victim. It's an actual victim. Uh, you don't have to be conscious of being harmed in order to, in order to have been harmed. Uh, suppose that there's uh, an actress who lapses into a coma. If her doctor, takes, uh, if her doctor sexually assaults her while she's, while she's in a coma, she's still been harmed even if she never finds out about it. So yeah, one does not have to be with, aware of being harmed to be harmed. The problem with your analogy there and all the others is that you're beginning with someone who was once conscious and then deprived of consciousness and using that to try to compare it to something that was never conscious. But 
Well, I, okay, I, I fail to see how, how that's relevant, though, that, how the previous consciousness makes something uh, is a relevant feature, I guess. Is so I guess, I guess my point here, which I'll, I'll put into a question for you, is we have one person, one real indisputable person that you and I would both absolutely agree as a person who has just gone through the horrific trauma of being raped and has now discovered that they are pregnant and you think that it is not all, that it is moral to also legally force them to remain pregnant and carry that child to term, and that you don't see as favoring the rights of the potential over the rights of the actual. No, I don't see that as favoring one over the other because we're talking about particular rights. The right to life has the, the particular the right to life has heavier weight than the right to bodily integrity. But l- let me let me put it this way: if there is a legislation on the boards right now, I don't think this is far enough. But if there was legislation that said we will outlaw all abortions except abortions in the case of rape or incest or life of the mother. Um, I would sign that legislation right now in a heartbeat. Again, I don't think it's far enough, but I would sign that legislation because of all the lives it would save. Would you also be willing to sign that legislation? Absolutely not. Well, then shouldn't we concentrate on those uh, on those pregnancies rather than concentrating on just the small? Because according to the Guttmacher Institute, uh, the amount of abortions in the case of rape only only accounts for about one to two percent of abortions. So shouldn't we I come agree. to some sort of agreement on the non-rape pregnancies before we talk about just the rape pregnancies? I'm not just talking about the rape pregnancies. I'm pointing out that you made an argument about responsibility, and you have no exception for the people who aren't responsible. That's how we got to this point. Um, and you can ask me all you want about. Um, where I draw the lines and why or what my answer is going to be on any issue, I'm actually addressing your case where you wanted to make an argument for personal responsibility, which is inconsistent with your actual position about what it should be. No, um, I, don't think it's, I, I don't think it's inconsistent because while responsibility accounts for why the vast majority of abortions are wrong, there are other reasons which could account for why, um, for why the other abortions are wrong. It, it's not an either-or here. Um, it's that uh, responsibility is a sufficient condition for the immorality of abortion, but it's not a necessary condition. And so in this case, I think that there's a basic rule of ethics in play, that we don't kill person A to benefit person B. That's not a lack of compassion for person B. It's just, a, it's just an unwillingness to commit murder. Yeah, except that, first of all, we don't agree on whether or not it qualifies as a person in that context. But also, even if it qualifies as a person, that person doesn't have the right to use another person's body without their consent. Is there any situation other than pregnancy where a person can legally use someone else's body without their consent? Um, Well, I think in the case of Siamese twins, they can. That's not somebody else's body. That's two bodies, and they have a shared portion. Well, yeah, but we we wouldn't allow one twin to kill the other twin that's using um, their particular organs. Correct, because it's not the other twin's organs. They are the shared organs. The, the, The fetus is not sharing anything. It is a parasitic relationship. Well, it's not a parasitic relationship. It's a symbiotic one. Um, there's a, well, a process that goes on called um, uh, microchimerism in which the unborn child and the mother actually exchange cells during pregnancy, and that can actually help stave off uh, sicknesses, even help um, stop cancer in some cases. So it's not simply other, a parasitic relationship. The other problem with your Siamese twins is that, um, you know, if you go up and sell yourself to somebody, 
that doesn't then obligate. Evidently, in your case, it does because you're fine with the, the idea that you're now morally obligated to stay connected to the violinist for nine months. Um, so, when it, since we've gotten away slightly from life of the mother as the dividing line, I guess, um, who decides where where we're going to draw this line? How much of a severe risk to the health of the mother? I mean, you went to the deathbed, but but crippling them for life is okay. Um, why is it not the case that it's merely sufficient that someone does not want to bring a child into the world, irrespective of any other reason? Um, actually, Matt, that that sums up um, the first crossfire session. Um, sure. Sorry to end it on a on a good question there, but what we'll do is I'll let Clinton uh, kind of lead the second um, twenty minute um, crossfire um, and far away some questions at Matt. Um, and I'll also say to those listening, um, we will be taking calls um, at um, 7.30 Eastern. So go ahead and you can go ahead and start calling. And um, after this uh, cross-exam, we'll start taking your call. So go right ahead, Clinton. Okay, so Matt, uh, are, there any, are there any abortions you think should be uh, legally forbidden, or do you think that all abortions should be allowed? Even if um, you think it might be immoral, would you say that all abortions should be allowed? I'm sorry, one more time? Oh, even if you think the, some particular abortions may be immoral, do you think that all abortions should be legally permitted? Yes. Even if the reason is because the fetus is female or because they've decided, you know, sometime in the future maybe they've discovered that the fetus is, is a homosexual or just for one of those reasons, do you think that it should still be legally permitted in those reasons? Yes. Okay, so um, I guess my my position then, because I've I've argued now a few times that personhood is relevant, and you've asserted that it isn't, and I've given arguments for their personhood. But um, I, I guess my question to you would be, what qualifications do you look for in establishing personhood? I don't care about personhood; it's irrelevant to the issue. Uh, and and the reason that I don't care is because even if it was a person, you know. If you took the two-year-old and somehow we were a species that could reabsorb um, our young and you took a two-year-old that had previously been born and put it back in there, that doesn't give it a right to use the person's body. Uh, it, this is the whole point of the bodily rights argument is that, you know, we can bicker about when personhood begins or when personhood should begin. Personhood, by the way, is not some natural thing. It is the imbuements of rights upon an individual. It is a, a legal societal uh, construct. And so, um, you know, as I noted in, in, the, in my opening, there are those who begin with consciousness. And I think if I had to draw, you know, some kind of lines somewhere, I think that I would begin drawing lines or wide swaths of lines in those areas, um, but it doesn't matter to me. I mean, it's you, you can't force someone to uh, give up their body and, and the use of their body to another actual person. So whether the so even the person so even if not, so even if you are responsible for that person's presence there, they still you're still permitted to kill them because they can't use your body without your consent. Now, see, you keep phrasing it as still permitted to kill them. Um, abortion is the terminus of a pregnancy. It is the right of removal. It is not 
the fault of the individual who is removing the fetus that this is going to result in death. That's just the natural course of things. It's not like pregnant women. It's not like pregnant women are sitting there saying, "Oh, I want to kill this fetus inside of me." It is, "I want to terminate this pregnancy and get it out." Which is why I mentioned in the future when we have sci-fi scenarios that might change this, we could revisit it. Well, yeah. I mean, if we if we have um uh, artificial wombs, I think it might be permitted to remove as long as we can do it safely. But the problem here is that um, oh, um, um, anyway, I'll, um, I'll, I'll come back to this. Uh, I did have another question that I wanted to address briefly. Uh, it seems that no right to act is absolute. For example, we don't have absolute uh, freedom of speech. We can't yell fire in a crowded theater, or we can't threaten the president. Uh, we don't have absolute right to religion. If your religion says that you can uh, can can engage in human sacrifice, we don't allow that. So isn't it at least conceivable that the right to bodily integrity could be curtailed under certain conditions? And if not, why is that an absolute right when no other right seems to be absolute? Well, I, I think you may be... Um kind of playing with words here as to whether or not the rights are absolute. You can shout fire in a crowded theater, especially if it's on fire, and you can do it even if it's not. There are just consequences to it. So, um, so I think what you mean by absolute right is you don't have a protected right to do something without particular consequences. Um, and so I'd point out that the right to bodily, bodily autonomy um, would fall under that as well, and so would the right to life. I mean, it's one of the... We, we, we don't have... Uh, we kill people in wars. We have the death penalty, although there are lots of debates and discussions about that as well. So is there some scenario in which your bodily autonomy um, can be curtailed? Yeah, I think there probably are, and I think we've even had some examples of them um, in, in the cases where someone um, has not left instructions and is not conscious and able to make decisions on their own. The rights for decisions about their body fall to, for example, the next of kin. Okay, I think I think you might be playing around with the with the term rights too, because when I use the term right, I mean that we have the freedom to do that thing, um, and and you seem you seem to think that we have a right that is uh, that is um, that is pretty much absolute, except that we kind of restrict certain uh, certain things. But I don't think that's necessarily how how our government looks at rights. Um, our, our founders in the Declaration of Independence talked about how we have uh, natural rights, such as the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But um, these rights are not, um, are not necessarily absolute. That's why they restrict them in law. Because even if, oh, for example, um, when, when slavery was legal in the United States, no one had the right to own slaves. They had a, a legal permissibility to own slaves, but they didn't have a moral right to do so. And so I don't care about uh, the moral right. This is, this is the thing. The, the moral rights are irrelevant. The only rights that matter are the rights that we grant. The Declaration of Independence is not a foundational document. Uh, it is not a legal document on the United States of America. And so we, have, we begin with all rights, and then we begin to restrict them. This is one of the reasons why when the founders wrote the, the Bill of Rights, the, the first ten amendments that specifically enumerated rights, there were founders who said this is really a bad idea because if we start enumerating rights, some idiot in the future is going to say we only have the rights that we've enumerated instead of we have all rights until we restrict them. And so well, you can say that you have a moral right, but I don't care because that's not rights are about what we grant people. 
Well, the Declaration of Independence is a foundational right because that's the document that it our has, Constitution is, is based it has on. No it has legal bearing in the United States. It's not a legal document but it, it, it outlines, in the United States. But it outlines the, the views that our founders had when they were outlining their rights. So I, I couldn't take the Declaration of Independence into a courtroom and, and expect legal standing with it, but it gives us an idea of where the founders believed rights came from and what they believed our rights were. So and it doesn't matter moral, at all. So, moral, so the moral right is important because we, we base our laws based on someone's, mora- someone's idea of morality. So if abortion is morally impermissible, that would grant us rights to, uh, to make it illegal, if it's the same thing as murder. Well, as you point out, you can't drag the, de- the declaration into a courtroom. Um, and what the founders thought about where rights come from is completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter. They set up a system... Um, that allow us to grant rights, revoke rights, make laws about rights. Um, they could have thought that your rights were imbued by um, ancient aliens, and they would probably be wrong, but we have instead come up with this idea of let's figure out what rights we have, we should have, which ones we're going to permit, and which ones we're not going to permit. And one of the things is that we begin with some very foundational rights, the right to govern oneself is probably the most foundational right, the, the right of bodily autonomy, owning your own mind, making your own decisions. That is the heart of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that we then begin to legislate and limit rights when those come in conflict with other rights. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about two rights coming in conflict. And this is why even if you wanted to call the fetus a person and give it rights, you've now created a situation where there are two people's rights in conflict, and the question is, is this person's right to use someone's body trumping their right to not have their body used? And in no situation outside of pregnancy would anybody argue that someone else has the right to come and make use of your body without your consent. Again, the reason for this is because the, the woman and the man are responsible for placing the, the child in a, in a state of dependency upon the woman. And so this is kind of tantamount to dragging someone onto your property then shooting them and claiming self-defense. You're not it's permitted not in killing like someone. You're, you're not permitted in removing someone from your property, whether it be your, your body or your house or wherever. You're not permitted in removing them if you must kill them to do so. It, well, actually, you're wrong about castle doctrine and things like that, but um, it's not remotely the same thing. Two people having sex is not like dragging someone on your property. Um, I mean, your analogy has gone way out of the window. I've I've had lots and lots and lots of sex, and none of it has resulted in a child. Right. Um, Yeah, like I said, sex doesn't always result in pregnancy, but it doesn't follow from that that sex is not responsible for pregnancy. So when we're talking about responsible and and causality, yes, um, you can't get sex if you don't have pregnant. You can't get pregnant if you don't have sex, sorry. Um, You also can't have sex if you don't meet a person to have sex with. Is meeting a person responsible for the sex? Because I, I can have sex, and I can have protected sex, and I can be responsible, and I can have irresponsible, unprotected sex, and there's no guarantee that any of this is necessarily going to result in a pregnancy, um, even if it results in a fertilization that's not guaranteed, 70, 75, 70% of fertilized eggs never even implants or something like that. Um, 
So, right, so but again, it doesn't follow from that, though, that you're not... The example of this baby-making machine, where you're pushing a button with some risk, um, the problem with that example is that when the baby comes out, uh, yes, I pushed the button and the baby comes out. And my responsibility is to perhaps either take care of it or find someone who will take care of it. But in that case, you're talking about a baby. If I push a button and a fetus appears inside my mouth, I have the right to remove it. Okay, but th- again, um, you're you're kind of begging the question here, though, because you're assuming that it's not a, that it's not a human being, it's not a child. And I have actually made an argument that the unborn are human beings and persons from fertilization. So you, have, you haven't even addressed those arguments, which means that I think I'm perfectly justified in using the example because uh, you haven't even responded to my uh, my personhood argument. So, yeah, because uh, personhood is irrelevant to bodily rights, as I said. You could call well, it a except person. It's not irrelevant so because now you're trying to. Well, it's not irrelevant because now you're trying to use that against the baby-making machine, but you haven't even argued for it. If, does another person have a right to use another person's body without their consent? In the case of pregnancy, I would say yes. Well, of course you would, because you've found the exception that fits with what you want. I don't know what you but mean what by, you, by what is your reason, and, and What but, is your reason for granting special rights to that scenario, because that's what you're doing. It's special right. It's rights. not a special right. It, it's, it's a it is. If that's the thing. only scenario in which you're willing to grant that right, it is necessarily, by definition, a special pleading right. No, because I'm not saying that it's, it's a quote-unquote right to, to use someone else's body. I'm saying that their right to life uh, negates our negates our ability, our, our permissibility to go in and kill them. It's not a special right I'm arguing for. It's, I'm arguing for that they have the same rights that we do, and they have rights that must be respected. And considering that the woman and the man are responsible for placing the child there, they have an obligation not to kill it. That's my argument. I'm well aware of that. Right. So, uh, it's, uh, again, I'm not arguing for special rights. I'm arguing that we respect the rights that they, right. like all of us, You can have. say you're not arguing for special rights all day, but in, in every other situation, no, you can't use a person's body. And in this situation, yes, you can. That is a special right. It doesn't matter if you try to frame it as, well, it's not about using that person's body. It's about these two people put it there. Well, no, they actually didn't put it there. If, if maybe if two people had actually... Um, gone in a lab and, and manipulated things and stuck it in there, maybe you could make the argument that they intentionally did this and that that implies uh, some responsibility on them. Um, but a, a percentage natural uh, response to something um, doesn't imbue a responsibility to sacrifice your life and your health in favor of the right to life of a collection of non-viable, non-conscious cells. Well, again, I'm not arguing that they intended to become pregnant. I'm, I'm pretty sure in a lot of cases that doesn't happen. What I'm arguing is well, that yeah, they you don't need any exceptions for rape. They engage in an act that is that is uh, intrinsically ordered towards procreation. That is the act, you know, until IVF came along. That was that was the act that our species propagates the species through. Is the act of sex. You have sex, the woman gets pregnant. It doesn't always happen that way. Just like. Some people don't, you know, gain weight from eating junk food, but the act of sex does lead to pregnancy. And so also, even though she may not intend to become pregnant, it's, it's the fact that she's taking that risk. Okay, so let me put it like this. Um, what, about, um, what about the case of child support? Do you believe that, that fathers should be, uh, or that parents in general, even women, that parents should be able to opt out of, of giving child support to their children? I don't know how that's relevant. Um, 
and it's it's such a simplified version of the question that I don't even know that I can answer it. Um, but do I well, think it's, people? It's, it's not because if we're going to. Do I think okay. people can and can and should be legally allowed to opt out of parental responsibility? Yes, including uh, including the father from giving child support. This is the difficult scenario um, that men's rights advocates have been raising, which is the man has no say in whether or not um, uh, there's going to be a child. I mean, they can't force an abortion on somebody, and they can't force somebody to carry uh, a child to term. And so are there arguments that could be had about whether or not someone could could and should legally be able to abdicate their parental rights Prior to uh, you know the decisions being involved, I think there I think there are arguments to be had there. I don't know um, okay, what well, my I'm position not, is on it. Okay, well, I'm not asking if there are arguments that could be made. I know that there are. I'm asking if you would advocate that because it seems like uh, we force situationally parents, yeah. we, we 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 force parents to give child support because we have a principle that uh, that we do what's best for the child. And so it seems like if we're going to um, to allow abortion, allow women to opt out of of, par- of parenthood in that way, it seems like we should also uh, allow fathers to opt out of of giving child support. Is that something that you would agree with? Do I? Yes. Are there scenarios where I think that that is a viable thing? Quite possibly. Well. Uh, well I, I'm asking yes or no, though, because I mean, I just want to. Well, I can't give you a yes or no. I can't give you a yes or no on this overly simplified thing because we have to look at a variety of different situations. At what point are they allowed to do this? Um, well, I, I don't. Are they I don't allowed think to do it when they're when they're four versus shortly after conception? I think there's a difference. Well, I don't think it's overly simplified uh, because. Um, if we allow, because you said you don't think that there are any abortions that should be forbidden. So at, at least during the no, state that's of pregnancy. Not what I, well, I said legally. Right, legally. Yeah, I'm talking legally yeah. here. So okay. it seems like even though you might not think it's it's the right thing to do, that we should legally permit fathers from not giving child support in that case. At least during the pregnancy, we should maybe have that nine months uh, grace period to where a father could opt out and not give any child support. Is that something you would agree with? I, I, as I said before, I would agree that this is something that might be viable. I am not convinced. I don't have a position on it. Well, okay. Uh, all right. I, I understand that. It just seems, though, that to be consistent, if we're going to allow the mother to opt out of, child, of, uh, of raising the child, of not, uh, of not forbidding any, of her, any reason she wants to have an abortion, even if it might be morally absurd, now, if we're not going to uh, for, forbid her from having any sort of abortions, I don't see how we could forbid the father from from opting out of child support either. And, and I don't disagree with you, which is why I said there may be arguments there, but I don't have an actual position on this, and it's not relevant to the subject of abortion. It is relevant well, to, the, to, the, to the subject of parental responsibility and what's going to happen after there's a child, and we could have a whole other debate about that, except I'm just not that interested. Well, except that's not that. That's not uh, that. That is um, that is relevant to the to the issue because we're talking about the mother opting out of raising the child, and then we're also opt, uh, talking about uh, for the father opting out of raising the child. Because if you have an, if the woman has an abortion, then obviously she's not going to have to raise the child after it's born. And so, right. if we're going to let the father opt out, then it seems like it would just have the same consequence. And and as I've said, I've heard that well, argument. 
I don't, right. I'm, I'm trying I think, to get you to commit to an answer, though, because you're not really. I mean, you're just saying, you know, it's possible, but you're not really saying yes or no. I'm just trying to see if you're, you know, how consistent you're going to be on the uh, on the issue here. Uh, this isn't a matter of consistency. If you'd listen to what I'm saying, I've heard that argument before. I find it compelling. I think there's a good argument to be made there, and I may be convinced that this that there is some viable solution to abdicate parental rights on behalf of the father at some point, but I do not yet have a firm position on this. I mean, it, it just, I don't know why this is so difficult. Um, you asked questions early on. I gave you the answers for the positions I have. Sometimes the answer is, I don't know, or I haven't considered that to the point where I'm willing to commit to what I think the law should be, which is the reason why we continue to have discussions so we get more and more informed. You, you try to pin me down on something, you know. I mean, it's there's there's no reason to try to pin me down on something that's you know, not really a part of this topic about whether or not abortion should be legal. That's completely separate from the responsibilities that come afterwards because even if we made abortion illegal, and as many of the pro-choicers would do, um, or the, the anti-choicers would do, would say, okay, now if you don't want to keep your kid, then we'll put it into the adoption system. Um, we could have a big talk about whether or not that's a moral Thing to do and how messed up the adoption system is and whether or not that should even be uh, a possibility. But there's the, uh, clearly an option there for them to completely abdicate parental rights. Um, but I don't have a firm position on it. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I did argue that, that, it's, um, that it has relevant uh, concerns, but that's just something we probably have to agree to disagree on. Um, I guess my next question would be, uh, okay, which intuition I is more – I'm sorry? I was saying uh, about, about, about one more one more minute. <laughs> Across the hand. Okay. Okay. I guess my next question or my last question would be: uh, Which intuition is more likely to be true? That people, including men, have the right to do what they want with their bodies, or innocent people have the right not to be directly killed? Which intuition is more likely true? Um, I don't know that, that I don't even know that that's a, a, a valid question um, because first of all you're you know you're poisoning the well by assuming um, that the fetus is a person but and you're also ignoring the fact that we're talking about a person living at another person's expense so you don't have a right to live at my expense so the intuition that my bodily autonomy is supreme is the one that's more likely to be true That uh, that wraps up that uh, session of cross exam. Thank you guys so much. It was very enlightening. Um, we actually will move into um, taking callers at this time. So please call in with your questions for Matt or for Clinton at seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. I know there's some good dialogue going on in the chat room, so feel free to call in with those questions and um, comments that you have there as well. But we do have a Did caller on hold. I'm sorry. I was going to say, is it possible to take like two minutes before we get to calls? Sure, we can, um, um, yeah. Let's, I, just um, get, I just need to go to the restroom and get a drink real quick. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yes, I, will, I can talk about Theology Matters um, for a couple minutes until you get back, Matt, no problem at all. That'd be great. Thank you. Um, yeah, so we're going to take a quick uh, recess while um, Matt takes a quick break. It's been um, an engaging debate, so I understand he needs to get up and 
move around in that. Um, but we wanted to um, tell you guys about our Facebook page. Um, you can find uh, us on Theology Matters with the Blues um, on Facebook. We invite you to like our page. Um, we have all of our show podcasts there, and um, we always post upcoming uh, discussions, debates, um, issues on the page there. Um, our email address is theologymattersradio at gmail.com. And feel free to email us if you have questions about this discussion, um, you know, questions in general, suggestions, thoughts. We always love to follow up and um, hear your thoughts about the show and ways that we can make it better. Um, and we normally air the show on Thursdays from uh, 6 to 8 p.m., but again, this is a special episode of Theology Matters. So we are um, bringing this to you on this Tuesday afternoon. Um, and uh, definitely enjoying the dialogue so far. There's lots of good discussion going on in the chat room. I've actually enjoyed following it, and um, lots of good points brought up that we likely may get to um, some of those questions in just a bit as well. And um, we, uh, again, we are thankful that you all are, are sharing with us today. Also remember that this um, discussion, this podcast, is available um, after the show, so you can listen to this as m much as you like. Um, feel free to post it on your blog, on your Facebook, um, you know, anywhere that you uh, want. Feel free to post it so that people can hear this discussion um, and weigh in on this topic as well. So we definitely appreciate I'm back, by the your way. support in that. Great. <laughs> um, so we will go ahead and take our first caller. And by the way, um, because it's just me today, I have no ability to screen these calls. So I can't guarantee which side they're going to go to. So we're just taking them yeah. as they come in, guys, okay? Okay. Okay. All right, first caller, can you give us your first name and where you're calling from? First caller, are you there? Uh, hello? Okay. Maybe he's not ready. Let's go to our next caller then. Okay. Hello? Second caller. You yes. Thanks for calling Theology Matters. Oh, hi. Matters. Sorry. Am I the second caller? You are. <laughs> um, may I get your first name and where you're calling from? Um, my name is Salma, and I'm calling from Seattle, Washington. Okay. And Salma, go ahead with your question for Matt or for uh, Clinton, please. Um, well, I think my questions are primarily for Matt because, well, I guess I, as a disclaimer, I I'm, I don't think I'm either pro-choice or pro-life, but um, I, I guess I'm really open-minded. I don't have a very strong position on the matter, but I guess these questions are primarily for Matt. Is that okay? Sure. Sure. Okay, so um, you were saying that the point of viability, well, that abortion before the point of viability, you would say is the woman's absolute right so she can take the fetus out at that before that point, but you would say after the point of viability, that becomes less um, less of her right because I, I wasn't sure why you um, why you put the point of viability as sure. where a woman's absolute bodily right ends to that point. Yeah, no, her uh, her bodily right doesn't end. She always has the right of removal, which is why I've continually tried to point out that what we're talking about here 
is the, the right to terminate a pregnancy. And prior to viability, uh, that is defined as abortion. There are certain methods for that. And after viability, it tends to be uh, an induction, a C-section, a delivery, um, with, with a handful of very minor exceptions uh, where it's the, you know, the, the life of the mother is at serious risk and we have to go in for emergency medical procedure, which, as Clinton pointed out, would be, you know, legal irrespective of whether abortion is legal. And that's why I started by pointing out that, you know, abortion is, is defined as the termination of a pregnancy of a non-viable fetus. And then after viability, we're no longer talking about um, abortion, but her bodily rights don't cease. She still has the right to remove. And if it yeah, lives or dies, yeah, that's, point. you know, not, not her not her responsibility. Yeah, so this is actually something that well, that I was thinking of um, after the point of viability, because you were talking about those few exceptions. And in the case of the few exceptions where an induction of labor or a cesarean section can be performed to save both the fetus and the, and the mother's um, or, and preserve her bodily integrity, I was thinking what would be the harm in having a regulation in which that would be the only method like inducing a birth or having cesarean in order to save the life of the fetus. Because in some, in some places, that's not a regulation. Even if the woman does, she doesn't want to induce labor or have a cesarean and it isn't threatening her life to, um, to do that, why can't that be the case? That's something that I was struggling with. Sure. So it's it's not um, a regulation everywhere, and I am no expert in this area on all the various abortion laws. I should get my wife up here because she knows this stuff much much better than I do. Um, it's the uh, practical application. It's virtually unheard of, and you know, impossible. It's already hard enough, thanks to trap laws, to to find a way to have any abortion. Um, but when we're talking about post viability uh, pregnancy terminations. In, in some cases, there's legislations that prohibit it. And your, your, your question seems to be, why isn't it okay for us to have those legislations? And my answer is, when we're talking about matters of health and we start shackling doctors who are the experts and saying, oh, no, no, you can only use procedure X, Y, and Z, we've made a big mistake. And this is what some of the anti-choice advocates are doing with trap laws running around basically making decisions about medical decisions, um, which are always going to be situational. Every pregnancy is going to be different. Every you know, individual is going to be different. This, is, this one's going to be a little stranger than this. And they're trying to make these broad-based uh, kind of clamp down things that shackle doctors and prevent them from being able to make decisions, which is why you know, clinics are closing down and, and why it would be nice to say in an ideal world that post-viability, you can only do either an induction or a C-section. But then there's the situation of the life of the mother where we have to do something different. Um, it's just a matter of recognizing that there are nuanced situations and limitations, and so we shouldn't over-regulate and shouldn't have non-medical professionals making decisions about medicine. Okay. So, um, all right, thanks for your answer. And I have a couple more points. Um, so... I guess my second question, I know this the topic is should abortion be legal or illegal, but um, I, I guess I do agree with safe, legal, and rare, but I find that only safe and legal are targeted, and 
Well, I think abortion is a fairly safe procedure. I, I, that's what I've been led to believe, and it's legal. Um, but rare, there's no government regulation on – there's no quota. And I was wondering if you personally agree with something like a, like a federally funded pregnancy health program or um, – I don't, I don't know if Planned Parenthood has something like that where they offer prenatal care or – pregnancy help, but would you be opposed to that? Because I think if, if something's, I don't think something just be, just being legal or just having contraception be available is going to make um, pregnant or going to make, to reduce the amount of abortion. So if, because I, I was reading up on a position called pro-both where we can reduce collectively the amount of abortions, but not necessarily by making abortion illegal, by altering the conditions in which um, altering the society in which women get pregnant and, and, and that their response doesn't necessarily have yes. to be abortion and they'd be yeah. comfortable being, get, going through with the pregnancy. I was wondering what your views on that were. Yeah, so I used to also be one of the people who would say safe, legal, and rare. Uh, and I dropped the rare for very good reasons. It's not that I want there to be a gazillion abortions. I think it needs to be safe, legal, and just as often as it's, as it's necessary, just as often as, as we need to have it, but that we should also be working um, to educate people. We, we should be combating the nonsense uh, sex education that some um, religious individuals are trying to promote, the, the abstinence-only sex education. The more ignorant people are about their bodies, the more likely you're going to have these unintended and unwanted pregnancies. Also educating them about contraception and um, just a massive amount of things. Education is a key step, but I don't say rare anymore because it implies that this is something that we, uh, that we should shun or not happen. And the fact of the matter is that there are uh, a situation that it should happen in every situation where it's necessary. And do I think that we should be taking steps? I agree that abortion? it should happen in every situation. I'm sorry for cutting you off, but uh, I'm yeah, scared so about losing say, my train of thought. Yeah, so I'm, I was going to say I appreciate your call. Yes, I was going to say we appreciate your call. We've got a lot of other callers, uh, oh, but we okay. do thank you so much for your question. It was very enlightening. Thank you for calling and for listening in. Okay. All right. No problem. Okay. Bye. So if I can, if I can finish on that real quick, one of the ways that we ahead, decrease abortion is by keeping it legal and not putting down restrictions to where, um, you know, people are having so much difficulty uh, getting the health care they need and getting funding to Planned Parenthood, et cetera. That's it. Okay, can, I, can I just respond okay. to that last point real quick? Yeah, sure. Or, okay, I just, uh, just real quick. I, I really don't think making something legal reduces the instances of it. In fact, making it illegal would reduce the instances of it. But this is why we have to uh, get behind what's the – uh, whether it's something that we should make legal or not, because like rape and murder, even if it didn't reduce any of the instances of it, uh, or even if it reduced it a lot, um, it's, it's the kind of act that we should make illegal, uh, because um, because uh, you know killing innocent human beings is the kind of thing that we make illegal, and so we can't leave it legal uh, if we care about respecting human dignity. Right, and I apologize earlier if I was feeding in. I was having some technical difficulties, but it got oh, all worked sorry. out, guys. <laughs> All righty. So let's go back to our initial first caller. Are you there? I'll have you on the line. Yes. Hello? Okay, great. Yes. Hi. And can Yay. I get your okay. first name and where you're calling from? Uh, my name's Ellen, and I'm from Berkeley. 
California. Okay, go ahead with your question okay. for Matt Clinton. So, yeah, I have a question for Matt. Um, okay. My question is, uh, what what do you believe as an atheist? What do you believe makes human beings valuable? And for any point in pregnancy where you believe a fetus obtains these characteristics? Um, so when it comes to value, um, is there any point of pregnancy in which a fetus attains the, the characteristics that would give it value? Yes. And yes. one of the things is that um, what you value is individual. So there are some people who are going to value the very second of of fertilization and, and contraception. That's all they want is even the prospect of a child, and so there's already some potential value there. Um, I'm not in the business of saying this is valuable enough or this is more valuable than that when it comes to the math of human lives. Um, I don't get into the simplistic um, a life is valuable, and this life is valuable, so they're equally valuable. Um, equally valuable to who or whom? Um, because, for example, my wife's life is far more valued, valuable to me than someone I don't know. And that's not that I don't care about the individual I know. It's just that I care more about this person. Um, when we talk about sure. humanity as a whole and what, what gives... Um, what gives us value, it's interactions with other humans. It is the conscious interactions between people. When Terry, so, Schiavo, when Terry Schiavo was laying there and had been brain dead for years, she was dead. There was no Terry Schiavo left. And her value, while her, the memory of her and the body of her had some uh, value to her family, as far as being a human and having value as a human, that had long passed. So, Matt, it sounds like you're saying that human beings' value is based on social interaction. Does that mean you think a hermit or somebody who doesn't have any family or friends isn't valuable, and if they happen to die, it wouldn't be a tragedy, or if, something, if some bomb fell wherever they were and blew them up, it would be okay because they don't have any value. Is that your only criteria for value for human beings? So... If there was only one person left in the universe, do they have any value if they don't value themselves? If, if there's a hermit out in the middle of nowhere that nobody knows exists and it happens to die, is that a tragedy? Well, from his perspective, I would imagine it would be. It doesn't affect anybody else, although it would if they knew about him. So it's not that I'm saying that this hermit has no intrinsic value, is value to himself, but if somebody dies that nobody knows, and nobody knows that they've died, I don't know how you could actually make, I don't, know, I don't even know how you could actually start beginning to assess it. So, it doesn't sound like, I mean, it doesn't sound like you have answered the question, um, you don't have any personal beliefs on why human beings are valuable, or, or are only people you know I, valuable? I are they, you, are I, human beings you know you. more valuable than those you don't? Is there a base level of human value? And if so, what is it? I, I told you exactly what my thoughts were on value, and that we value people. We value people to varying degrees. 
Um, you're, you're trying to, I guess, address does, do, do human beings have some innate value unto themselves that contributes a level to society? And my position is that this is primarily based on interactions, that you can have a personal so value would, to so yourself. So it would be okay for someone to kill a hermit? Is that, is that what no. you're saying? Why not? Because, because that person has the right of bodily autonomy. They, don't, they have a right to not be killed. So why do they have that right? Because we grant that right to them. Why, why do we grant that right to them? Why do you think they deserve that right? We because we value right? a system. We value a system where people come into it with equal rights. It's this idea that we're all equal. Um, we're not all actually equal. It's not like I can you know jump as high as Michael Jordan or anything else by individual things. The idea is that we are treated equally under the law, and that yeah, we have we, we make equal the value under the law. We have equal value under the law, irrespective of other people's views about what our value is. You, you seem to be treating the law as completely separate from us as people, but we make the law. The law has a reasoning behind it. It has, it has morality behind it. So how can you separate it? I mean, do you support the law or not? And if you support the law, why do you support it? Why do you think the hermit should have bodily autonomy? So, okay, uh, very simply... Uh, because we've determined that this is the better way to live, that a world which, in which our rights are protected, a world, a world in which I want to live and I'd rather not be killed, the best thing I can do is to get together and partner with other people who would rather live and not be killed. And so we get together and we say, we have these rights and we're going to enforce these rights because they're beneficial to us. And so anybody who wants to participate in this society can do that. And those who don't, can go off and form their own society within limits until societies come in conflict. We do it because it has demonstrated itself to produce a better society than a society in which nobody has a right to not be killed. I, I, it, this is just so simple, I, I don't get why it's not obvious. Okay, could I take a moment to respond to you, please? Sure. Uh, do we have Melissa still on the line? Maybe it's just me and you, Clint. Okay. Um, all right. Well, so, uh, so Matt keeps mentioning that we grant rights to other people, and it seems to me that if if society is the one who grants rights, then we're then it's really not a society in which our rights are protected, because only if our rights are seen as not granted by man. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about being granted by any supreme being or anything, but if we understand that all human beings, based on what they all have equally, they're humanists has rights, then it would seem that the unborn would qualify, but a society that grants rights can rightfully take those rights away, which means it would not be wrong for them to take the right to an abortion away and grant uh, personhood to the fetus, which just means that they're granting uh, basic rights to the fetus is all really what personhood means. And so we have to keep in mind there's a difference between instrumental and intrinsic value. Now, I am instrumentally valuable to Life Training Institute. Uh, my brother is not because he's not studied uh, the abortion issue. But the both of us have the same basic intrinsic rights, which means it's equally wrong to kill us, even though I'm more valuable as, in a, as, uh, as a pro-life advocate to LTI. We both have the same intrinsic right, the same intrinsic right to life as, say, a hermit does. And so uh, we need to keep in mind that there are uh, the difference between instrumental and intrinsic rights as well. That just because I might, you know, cry when my best friend dies, but not when, when a homeless person does, doesn't mean that the homeless person is any less valuable than my best friend. 
Okay, great. And um, I apologize. I was having some more technical difficulties. Um, oh, I'm going to bring in our next on. caller. <laughs> um, Eric um, has a question for Matt. Yeah, hi. Um, my question was actually kind of uh, answered by Clinton. He kind of asked what I was going to ask, but I had another question for Matt. Um, in your bottom I didn't do that on purpose. Autonomy, <laughs> yeah. uh, in your I'm bodily sorry, autonomy argument, um, you use the example of a parent withholding a kidney from a child. However, we're not withholding support. We're not having inaction, but there's action going forth and actually killing the child. How do you justify comparing the killing of an organism with withholding support from an organism, which are two completely different things? Um, so I actually address this twice in two different ways. Um, one of them is that uh, the violinist version of the argument is not a withholding. It is a removal. Um, so I presented two different versions of the bodily rights argument, specifically because the two combined um, address all possible scenarios or all uh, current scenarios. But the other thing is that um, this is a matter of framing. And Clinton and the anti-choice crowd want to keep saying, no, 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 you're taking an action to kill it. Um, you could just as easily say, I am taking an action to remove it and protect my bodily rights. It is an incident of nature that currently this is going to result in the death of the fetus. It is not, as I've said probably three times, that the women are sitting around saying, oh, I can't wait to kill this thing that's inside of me. It is, I no longer want to be pregnant. This thing inside of me has no right to use my body without my consent. I'm going to remove it, which is why I said in the future when we come up with sci-fi solutions of being able to transport it into a, a mock uterus or somebody else or whatever, that we may have to revisit this issue. But as it stands right now in reality, this is the right of removal. Sure. If I can just quickly follow up. Couldn't someone then say that it's an incident of nature that the unborn child violates the woman's right to life and therefore, I mean, excuse me, bodily autonomy and therefore has a right to life? If you can say, well, it's an incident of nature that the, you know, abortion kills the child, therefore... It's, it's okay to do that in order to preserve her bodily autonomy. Can't the argument sure, be turned around? I, I'd actually be fine with somebody saying that it's an incident of nature that placed the child there, uh, but Clinton seems to think that it's the responsibility of the people who had the sex, and I, I disagree with him. I, I would agree that it's the incident of nature, the process that comes after this, that nature's been driving people, that this is an eventual result of sex, but it doesn't change the fact that even if you grant the fetus a right to life, that they still don't have the right to life at another's expense. Nobody, if, no yeah, person, no, no actual person on the planet has a right to life at someone else's expense. You, but the problem is you, you, you said that society confers those rights. Why yes. can't we just switch it around and say, well, no one has a right to bodily autonomy at the expense of someone's right to life? If society you gives those rights, like Clinton said, can't we just change it? Why do you keep saying, well, no one has that right, like it's an objective right? If society is the one that decides that, can't society decide something different? Sure, they could. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. 
And we and we could have a big we could have yet another debate about how they're wrong to do it or how I don't want to be a part of this society or anything sure. else. But this is this bodily autonomy is a foundational principle. The number of things that you would have to uh, throw out the window in order to get rid of this is much like the young earth creationists wanting to complain about radiometric dating. The amount of science they would have to throw out to actually get to a young earth is just absurd. I mean, we're not throwing okay, out bodily autonomy. Okay, Clinton, did you want to go ahead and jump in? This probably is our last um, uh, opportunity here because we got about five five minutes left, so go right ahead. Okay, um, are we going to, I mean, um, are we going to have time for closing speeches or? Um, we will we will try. <laughs> we were going to just end the question. Okay, it's just, I, oh, I don't yeah, really I thought have... this was just the end of the questions and it was over. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that's fine too. I, I'm I'm okay either way. I just wanted to. Uh, make sure I know what's going on, because uh, I, I really don't have anything to add that I haven't already said. Okay. Okay. So, well, we yeah. can jump to another question really quick then. Um, yeah. Okay, caller, where, uh, can you um, uh, give us your name and where you're calling from? Uh, my name is Sean, and I'm from Niles, Illinois. Okay, Sean, can you uh, give a quick question to Clinton or, uh, or Matt here? Yeah, my question is, is uh, more of a scenario, and it's for Clinton. Okay, uh, you might have heard this before, but if there's a there's a burning building and uh, there's a room with a, a baby and a hundred a uh, hundred implanted embryos, and uh, you only have enough time to save one of them, which one do you save? Uh, yeah, I have actually heard this uh, scenario before. Uh, the, the difficulty here is that it. it it doesn't really prove what pro-choice people believe that it proves because, again, we're not talking about direct killing. We're talking about who would you save. So this is more of a question of instrumental value over intrinsic value because, for example, uh, let's say um, uh, I, I'm not married, but let's say I was, and let's say my wife is in a room and the house is burning and a room full of 20 people is in another room. Well, who am I going to save? I'm probably going to save my wife before I save those 20 people. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think those 20 people aren't human. It just means that I have... Well, I mean, not only is my wife more valuable to me, but it also means, but I also have certain obligations to my wife that I don't have to 20 strangers. So in this case, uh, th this doesn't really prove that even if someone saves the toddler that they, uh, and over the uh, embryos, it but doesn't prove that the embryos aren't valuable or aren't human. But you don't know any of them. Take your wife out of the equation. If, there was a, if your house was on fire and there were two uh, rooms uh, full of people and there was only, you know, you can only save one room, there's, if there was a separate amount of people in each, uh, if it was five people in one room and ten people in another room, and you could save the ten and not the, and you could save the ten or the five, and only have one choice, and you don't know any of these people, they're just in your house. Okay. If you don't know any of the, if you don't know the baby or the embryos, you still have that choice. I think it takes away from that. Okay. okay well, yeah, I, I disagree though. I don't. One I don't... minute. Yeah. Okay, just let me respond real quick. I don't, I don't think you. it takes away from that because uh, you, the problem is you might still have morally relevant reasons for saving the toddler over the embryos. I mean, uh, you know, the toddler um, is, is already here experiencing life. It has uh, a mother uh, who, who loves the child and would want the child back. The problem with the embryos is uh, you have no idea what, what the fate of the embryos are. They, they might go back to freezing. They might be uh, experimented on or they might be implanted. Even if they're implanted, you don't have... A guarantee that any of them will take. So this is really more of like a case of triage. The toddler has a 100% chance of survival. The embryos don't. So it seems like the reasonable solution is to save the, the toddler because you know for a fact the toddler will go on to survive. 
And, and I'd point out that the embryos don't have a guarantee of survival even if they're implanted and living in a womb. And so it's much more reasonable to protect the bodily rights of the woman than to protect the potential rights of a potential thing. Well, that's a great way to end the show. Um, thank you both, Matt, uh, Dillahoney, and Clinton Wilcox, for taking the time out of your day to be here with us on Theology Matters with the Palouse. It's been a great discussion. I'm sure that this discussion uh, will continue on. Um, and through those who have listened, um, again, uh, those who are listening, feel free to repost this, uh, the link to this podcast and continue the dialogue. We feel like this is an important issue, and we're really thankful for you guys both for being on with us today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thanks, Clinton, for participating. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Thank uh, you so here. much, short. And thank you so much to the callers. Um, remember to check us out on Facebook at Theology Matters with the Flues on Blog Talk Radio. Join us here next week for a wonderful show. And, again, uh, thank you all for those who called who we couldn't get to. Thank you for your support. And, again, we just want this dialogue to continue. And um, we appreciate your time. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.